Well, several years ago now, I watched a video clip that I believe went what they call viral. I'm not a technologically um, savvy person, but that's what I've been told. It went viral, so perhaps some of you saw it as well. It was a short video clip of the Kimyul tribe from West Papua, Indonesia, receiving a shipment of the New Testament in their language for the very first time. Some of you are nodding your heads. Well, as the scene opens, the whole tribe, men, women, children, are gathered by a primitive airstrip waiting to spot the little plane that is carrying that precious cargo of the New Testament in their own language. Suddenly, you can hear the sound of the engine in the video as the plane circles overhead, preparing its approach. But soon, the roar of the engine is drowned out by the voices of the people singing in their own language. But you could tell the tune, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And then as the plane lands on that primitive airstrip, there's clapping and dancing and tears of joy and jubilant celebration. The packages are carried off and presented to the tribal and church leaders. And then the pastor's prayer is translated across the bottom of my computer screen. And this is what it says. The month that you had set, the day that you had set, has come to pass today. Oh, my father, my father, the promise that you gave Simeon, that he would see Jesus Christ and hold him in his arms before he died. I also have been waiting under that same promise, oh God. You looked at all the different languages and chose which ones will be put into your word. You thought that we should see your word in our language. Today, the day you had chosen for this to be fulfilled has come to pass. You have placed it here in our land, and for all this, O oh God, I give you praise. Later, in an interview, the Indonesian pastor concludes, Our hearts are no longer heavy. They are light. And as I watched this little six-minute video from my office chair, if the truth be told, I was moved to tears. I looked around at the number of Bibles I have sitting in my study at home. And I thought how much I have taken for granted. I thought about how tempting it is for me each morning to check email or social media before I spend time in God's word. I thought about how much more these people seem to cherish the treasure of God's word that I so easily hold in my hand. As we begin our time together tonight in this first ever conference, considering the need for biblical exposition, I know I may be preaching to the choir. Because if you really believed what the women or children you minister to really need is the teaching of moral lessons or motivational talks or entertaining stories or your wisdom on numerous life issues, you would not be here. But you are here. And in a culture where truth is relative, where a consumer mentality rules the day, where quite often teaching is more therapeutic than prophetic, 
I trust you are here because you believe that the proclamation of God's word, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is most needed. I trust you are here because you believe that the careful study and teaching of the entirety of God's word with clarity and power is most essential. When we think about the need for expositional teaching, it really comes down to this question. What do you believe about this book? What we believe about the Bible not only informs why we teach, it informs what we teach. It informs how we teach. What we believe about the Bible is everything. So in our brief time together tonight, I would like to focus on some truths that we must believe as women who want to exposit the scriptures. Four truths that are not going to be new, but important reminders for each of us. First truth, unlike any other book that exists, the Bible is the inerrant word of God. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy 3.16. Again, a familiar passage. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy that all scripture is breathed out by God. In Greek, theonoustos, God breathed. More literally, breathed into by God. The scripture that we so readily hold in our hands is divine in origin. It bears God's perfection, his authority. It gets its true and powerful and holy character from God himself. Yes, human authors with distinct personalities wrote the Bible in different genres during specific historical contexts. But they wrote down exactly the words that God intended. They wrote under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 2.21, no prophecy, no words of scripture were produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, every word, every stroke of the pen breathed out by God's Spirit. The Bible can be trusted as the definitive revelation from the mouth of God himself. Because God is the ultimate author of the Bible and because God is always perfectly truthful, it follows then that his word is completely truthful, inerrant, because he is the God who never lies. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. Sisters in Christ, the scripture that we hold in our hand is is God's inspired Inerrant word to us and to all humanity. Think about it. The one who spoke the heavens into existence. The one who by the breath of his mouth created all the hosts of heaven. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. This same one has spoken to us. John Piper wrote, if God is the supreme value in the universe, then to have God speaking to us is more precious than anything else. 
as we prepare to study and teach before doing anything else, will we humbly and prayerfully listen to his words spoken to us? Will we read and reread a text, not as masters of the word, but as servants, asking God for understanding, asking him by his spirit to help us see what is there so that his intended message might shape our lives first and then in turn shape the lives of those we teach. The Bible is God's inerrant word spoken to us more precious than anything. Second, because the Bible is God speaking, it is powerful. Now, next to the Bible, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is arguably one of the most read books in history, actually one of my favorites. Late in this allegorical work comes a dialogue between the characters of Mr. Greatheart and Valiant for Truth. Mr. Greatheart meets Valiant, and they begin to converse during a lull in the battle. And after hearing about some of Mr. Valiant's recent victories against the enemy attacks, Mr. Greatheart responds approvingly, You have certainly behaved very worthily. What kind of sword do you have? Mr. Valiant replies, It is a two-edged sword that cuts both ways. A soldier need not fear if he has this and knows how to use it. Its edge will never blunt and it will cut flesh and bones and soul and spirit. What a picture. Paul paints it in Ephesians 6, doesn't he? Verse 17, a soldier wielding this sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 tells us the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Because it is God-breathed, this word is powerful, capable of piercing the human soul, capable of calling people from death to life, capable of transforming lives. Need we look any further than ourselves to know this truth? God's word is alive And in all of its power, it will accomplish what it has been sent to accomplish. I love what R.C. Sproul writes in his book, Knowing Scripture. He says this, When I was hired to teach the scriptures in a required Bible course at a Christian college, the president of the institution phoned me and said, We need someone young and exciting, someone with a dynamic method who will be able to make the Bible come alive. Sproul writes, I had to force myself to swallow my words. I wanted to say, you want me to make the Bible come alive? I didn't know that it had died. (laughs) In fact, I never even heard that it was ill. No, I can't make the Bible come alive for anyone. The Bible is already alive. It makes me come alive. Isn't that freeing? Friends, this is our powerful weapon. Don't ever doubt it. Charles Spurgeon, maybe you've heard of him, a British preacher from the mid-1800s, came to know Christ at the age of 15. On January 6, 1850, on his way to a scheduled appointment, a snowstorm 
forced him to cut short his journey. He turned down a side street and went into a primitive chapel. Because of the snow, the minister did not come that morning. Instead, Spurgeon wrote, and I love this, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up to the pulpit to preach. Spurgeon continued, Now it is well that preachers be instructed, but this man was really stupid. (laughs) He really wrote that. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45, 22. Spurgeon wrote, he didn't even pronounce the words rightly, but that didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimmer of hope for me in that text. When the man had managed to spin out about ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all that was in my heart. He said, young man, you look very miserable, and you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey this text. Look to Jesus. You have nothing to do but look and live. Spurgeon recounts, I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Jesus and the simple faith which looks alone to him. This is a powerful word. God's word. Do you believe it? We don't even know this minister's name. Yet he faithfully opened God's word and allowed it to call Charles Spurgeon from death to life. As teachers, we don't have to come up with gimmicks. We don't have to cave to the cultural pressure to entertain with personal stories. We need only to pray and work hard to rightly handle this powerful word of truth. A word that we need not add or take away from. It speaks for itself. Calling people from death to life. This is the powerful word of God. What we believe about the Bible is everything. It is the inerrant word of God. It is powerful. And thirdly, the Bible is all about Jesus. Jesus himself spoke of this in his conversation with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Do you you remember it in Luke 24? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What a sermon that must have been. In Acts 8, when Philip met with the Ethiopian eunuch who was reading from the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah, Verse 35 tells us, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture from the Old Testament, he told him the good news about Jesus. The eunuch ended up being baptized that very day. From Old Testament to New, from Genesis to Revelation, the scriptures all bear witness to Jesus. Now, does this mean that Jesus is mentioned in every text of the Bible? 
Of course, you know the answer to that is no. It, re- it reminded me of the story told about the Sunday school teacher who asked her third grade class that question, what is furry brown and eats nuts? And one little boy raised his hand and said, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. (laughs) Jesus does not appear explicitly in every text of scripture. Pastor and author Brian Chappell puts it like this. Our goal as Bible readers who are interpreting as Christ intends is not to try to make Jesus magically appear in every text but to show where every text properly stands on his redemptive stage. Jesus is the chief and culminating figure on the stage. The stage is set for Jesus. All that transpires on the stage relates to him, and we do not fully understand anything on the stage until we have identified its relation to Jesus. Chapel goes on, every text relates some aspect of God's redeeming grace that finds its fullest expression in Christ. Ultimately, we understand who he is and what he does by how he fleshes out the message of redemption that unfolds throughout all the Bible. This is so beautiful, yet it's so foreign to so many. So many think that they have to endure the Old Testament history with its war and death. They have to suffer through the poetry and the prophecy to get to the good stuff about Jesus in the New Testament. But this could not be further from the truth. Sixty-six books make up the Old and New Testaments proclaiming one story of God's redemptive plan for the world. Every book needs to be taught in light of the big story of God's redemption. Jesus is all over the Old Testament. He is there at creation in Genesis 1. He is there in the promise of Genesis 3.15, which Bible scholars refer to as the first gospel. He is there in the blood over the doorposts and in the exodus from the bondage in Egypt. Jesus is there in the sacrifices in Leviticus. He is there in Jonah and Habakkuk and the messages of all the prophets. He is there in the praise and petitions of David in the Psalms. All scripture has the power to bring salvation because it is all about Jesus. My oldest grandchild is five. Her name is Lucy. And she just started kindergarten this year. She's always lived several hours away from us, so we always look forward to those in-person visits or those FaceTime calls, pictures, videos that mom sends. And I will never forget the short video my daughter Sarah sent when Lucy was two years old. And the caption under it read, her new fascination. So I was intrigued. In it, Lucy is walking around with Sarah's big Bible, barely able to hold it in her little hands. I think she may have even had it upside down. But she is serious, nonetheless. And I hear Sarah's voice off camera saying, Lucy, this is God's word. Who is in God's word, Lucy? And to my joy... Her little voice replied enthusiastically, Jesus. 
With that, Lucy has the Bible on the floor because it was too heavy to hold anymore. She's peering into its pages and literally with her nose almost touching it, Sarah says, Do you see him, Lucy? Do you see him? And Lucy gives literally an audible gasp and says, Oh, look! As though Jesus is right there on the page. I've watched that video more times than I can count. And each time I think and I pray the same thing. Oh, Lord, as Lucy grows, illumine her heart so that she might truly see Jesus through all the pages of your word. Please draw her and let her truly come to know you personally, the one to whom all scripture points. Let her never lose her awe. For the beauty of Jesus. Sisters, do you see him? Do you see him? As we read the scripture, are we in awe of his beauty and magnificence? As teachers, are we committed to teaching the whole of scripture, finding our place in God's redemptive story? Do we have a sense of the privilege that is ours to show the gospel at every point? That is the death and resurrection of Jesus and what it means to a world that so desperately needs to hear it. Every opportunity, lift up Jesus. Lift him up. I remember in college hearing the story of a man named Evie Hill. He spoke in chapel one day. He's now with the Lord, but he was the pastor of Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in the heart of Los Angeles. He told of the ministry of an elderly woman in his church whom the congregation referred to as 1800 because no one knew how old she really was. (laughs) 1800 was hard on unsuspecting preachers because she would literally sit in the front row And when the preacher began, she would say, get him up, (laughs) referring to Jesus. After a few minutes, if she did not think it was happening, she would again shout, get him up. If a preacher did not get him up, he was in for a long, hard day. (laughs) The Bible is all about Jesus. Lift him up. Lift him up. It is the inerrant word of God. It is powerful. It is all about Jesus. And finally, and I didn't even know this former slide was going to be up here. The Bible is sufficient. It is all we need for life and godliness. This was certainly Moses' conviction. In Deuteronomy 31, Moses places a written copy of the law given by God by the Ark of the Covenant and passes the torch of leadership to Joshua. This is followed by the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, which ends with these words. Moses said to the people, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is no empty word for you. 
but your very life. What's more, the second Moses, that is Jesus, modeled the dependence on Scripture at every turn. As Matthew 4 records, in his days of temptation, he leaned on the sufficiency of Scripture. As he taught in the cities and town, he referenced Scripture constantly. Jesus was a man of the word par excellence. The words of Scripture were his food. They were sufficient. They were all he needed for life and godliness. 2 Timothy 3.16 goes on in verse 17 to say, All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. This word of God not only has the power to bring us salvation, it tells us everything we need to know. It tells us everything we need to know about him and to live as he intends. It is sufficient for all of life. Do you believe that? Are we feeding on it daily? Am I? Am I delighting in it? Depending on it for all that we need to live as God intends. As teachers, as friends, as mentors, when those to whom we minister struggle with temptation, do you take them to Scripture? When they face besetting sins, do you take them to Scripture? When they struggle in their marriages, do you take them to Scripture? When they struggle to forgive, do you take them to Scripture? The Bible is sufficient to meet all of our needs. Not some, not a few, but all of our needs for life and godliness. Sisters, the greatest reason for expositional Bible teaching Wherever God has put you, the greatest reason is the Bible itself. It is God speaking, the inerrant word of God. As such, it is powerful. From beginning to end, it is all about Jesus and his gospel. It is sufficient, all that we need for life and godliness. The truths found in this book are what we need. They are what our families need. They are what our churches need. Indeed, they are what a lost and dying world needs. This is why we must study and teach the Bible, all of it, faithfully, accurately, prayerfully, passionately. The Bible above all else. No matter how many Bibles you have in your house, Will you realize anew with me what we hold in our hands? The people of God in the Kimuel tribe did as they received the very first Bibles in their own language. And with the sound of rejoicing in the background, that final frame of the video shows a verse in the Kimuel language, a verse 
that they were able to see and read for the very first time. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. To the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.